Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you this morning. Spring has begun, uh, and we're, uh, we're the ones who didn't go anywhere for spring break, I take it. Is that the deal? So, uh, yay you, yay me. Thrilled to be here with you this morning. A couple of years ago, uh, researchers at Erasmus University carried out an interesting study. You know, some of these studies, you know, government-funded and a lot of interesting, some of them bizarre things that are done, but this was an interesting one. Uh, They asked one group uh, to think and write a little bit about someone who'd hurt them that they had not forgiven. That was the first group. Think and write about someone who's hurt you and you have not forgiven, okay? Second group was to think and write about someone who had hurt them deeply, but they had forgiven them. Then the third group they were supposed to think about was uh, just sort of a benign relationship. It was somebody who uh, they had a friendship with, uh, they, you have the ups and downs of life, but it, nothing really significant, just sort of a neutral type of relationship. So they were the, the control group, if you're familiar with studies. Well, uh, all the participants, after they'd spent time doing this, were given this small physical challenge. Now, think of this. It's a little goofy to think about. It. They were instructed, we want you to jump five times as high as you can without bending your knees. So it's like, you know, I, I bent my knees a little bit. But, you know, this, so this is the drill. This is what they're, all the groups were doing. And, of course, everybody was measured on how high they could, uh, could jump. Now, this may, you may be thinking to yourself, this is really weird. What's this all about? Here's what they found. People in the forgiveness group, group two, consistently were able to jump more than three inches higher on average than any of the others. Is that interesting? I mean, it's, it's a little bizarre. It's a bizarre test, but it was interesting. Uh, and after the test and several others that they also uh, included that I'm not telling you about this morning, uh, here was the conclusion of the researchers. Carrying a grudge may literally weigh you down. It, it just may do it. It, it j- just can add, it, it takes away something from the spring. In your life and your step. Now, you may be thinking it's a little bit of a goofy test, but uh, most of us would acknowledge that a pain filled past can emotionally complicate our lives. It can weigh us down uh, in our present, it can affect our relationships, it can affect our work performance, it can affect an awful lot of things about our lives. And, and that is part of what's so amazing to me about the biblical account of Joseph's life. We've been working our way through the life of Joseph. For any of you who uh, aren't familiar with us, been been gone the last couple of weeks. Uh, we've been working our way through uh, the, the life of Joseph, uh, the son of Jacob, uh, the grand, a great-grandson of Abraham, uh, the namesake of Jesus, the namesake of my oldest son, for that matter. I'll throw that out there. Uh, we've been working through his life the last several weeks and the biblical account of his life and learning from him. And Joseph had lots of trauma and pain, and not just trauma and pain, but I want you to think about this, trauma and pain very early in his life. He was 17 when he was betrayed by his brothers. He was thrown into a pit. He was sold as a slave. He was falsely accused of a crime and thrown in prison because of it. And on and on it went with Joseph. But somehow, with God's help, he rose above the pain of his past and fulfilled God's plan for his life. And um, it's a phenomenal story. If you've not read it, read Genesis uh, 
you know, the latter part of the book. Really starts in chapter 37 and kind of goes on. Today we're going to talk a little bit about two keys to overcoming the past that Joseph modeled. Two keys to overcoming the pain and of his past. Because the reality for every one of us is every one of us has a past to overcome. Granted, some of us have, shall we say, more drama to our past than others. But everyone has a past. Everyone has brokenness that we've got to overcome. Things that emotionally weigh us down, bogs down our present or our future if it's not dealt with appropriately. And so we're going to talk this morning, we'll learn from Joseph about how to overcome that, at least two of the steps that he took. If you have your Bible, open it to Genesis 42. And... Um, encourage you to grab one out of the chair in front of you. We're not going to put it up on the screen this morning. We do a lot of times. I want to force you to use your Bible this morning. So uh, I apologize in advance. Just bear with me. I want you to use that book. Use that book. Genesis chapter 42 is where we're going to start. Grab a Bible, open it up, and we're going to start uh, in in the early part of that. Also, uh, look to chapter 45 and put a finger there because we're going to look at chapter 45 a little bit here in a few minutes, okay? So 42... And 45, right? 42, 45. And let me catch us up on the story of Joseph's life while you're turning there. By this time in Joseph's story, Pharaoh's dreams had come to pass, just as Joseph had interpreted them, at least the first part of the dreams had come to pass. Seven years of abundance had just passed, and now the seven years of famine were beginning. It was, it was beginning in earnest here. So if you've got your, uh, your spot there in the Bible, Genesis 41, 42, let's actually start verse 40, uh, uh, chapter 41, verse 54. So just look a couple verses before. This is what the Bible says, and just follow along in your, in your Bible there, or if you're in the live stream, make sure and follow along there, okay? Seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had predicted. The famine also struck all the surrounding countries, But throughout Egypt, there was plenty of food. Eventually, however, the famine spread throughout the land of Egypt as well. And when the people cried out to Pharaoh for food, he told them, Go to Joseph and do whatever he tells you. So with severe famine everywhere, Joseph opened up the storehouses and distributed grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout the land of Egypt. And people from all around came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe throughout the world. So I just want you to see this, is a, this was a major ecological event that was taking place. It was affecting everywhere. The cause of this we don't entirely know. The Bible doesn't give us the full description of that. But it tells us that this thing was a major, major deal. It was affecting the entire region and beyond. Chapter 42, verse 1, pick up there. When Jacob, remember who Jacob is? Joseph's father, right? When Jacob heard the grain was available in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why are you standing around looking at one another? I've heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy enough grain to keep us alive. Otherwise, we'll die. So Joseph's ten older brothers went down to Egypt to buy grain. Now, let's just pause right there. Does Jacob know that Joseph is alive? No. Do his brothers know that Joseph is alive? No. They don't know this. They don't know that he's risen to this place of influence. Verse 3, so Joseph's ten older brothers went down to Egypt to buy grain, but Jacob wouldn't let Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin, go with them for fear some harm might come to him. Now just think about this. You're the parent. 
your earlier son was devoured, so you think, by a wild animal or something of that sort. It's the story he'd been told. No reason to disbelieve his, his other, other sons. And so you have another son, younger. What are you going to do with him? You, just by nature, you become a little protective. So he's not going to let Benjamin go with him for fear some harm might come to him. Verse 5. So Jacob's sons arrived in Egypt with others to buy food, for the famine was in Canaan as well. And since Joseph <coughs> excuse me, was governor of all Egypt and in charge of selling grain to all the people, it was to him that his brothers came. When they arrived, they bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph recognized his brothers instantly. But he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where are you from, he demanded. From the land of Canaan, they replied. We have come to buy food. And although Joseph recognized his brothers, they didn't recognize him. And he remembered the dreams he had had about them many years before. I just think that's significant. God had given him a dream early on. And, and now it's taking place right before his very eyes. The passage goes on in verse 9. and says, he said to them, you are spies. You've come to see how vulnerable our land has become. And, and on the discourse goes. Basically what happens from this verse on for quite a while, Joseph begins to mess with his brother's heads. That's the simplest way to put it. You know, there, I have thought, these are verses of Scripture that I have read extensively. I've reflected on deeply. I've read commentaries. And honestly, uh, we, we can look at it. We can see that Joseph is gathering information about his family. He's gathering information about his father, his brothers, their character, what they're like, on and on. He's doing all of that and far more. There are some prophetic things that he does, meaning from a human standpoint, you read it and, you, and we try to give reason to it. And it doesn't always make sense, but it has prophetic implications because Joseph is like a shadow of Messiah Jesus, who shows up later. Now, I don't have time to get into all of that this morning. Uh, that's beyond the scope of this message. But, but Joseph, who, who suffers and then rises to power and influence, is a prophetic foreshadowing of Jesus, who suffers, rises to power and influence globally, universally, all things visible and invisible. So there's a, there's a foreshadowing that goes on there. And so there, there's a lot that happens in, in these uh, moments that is prophetically related to all of that. It's kind of complicated to figure out, and some of which, you know, I, honestly, as I read it, I, I don't know what to do with it. Some of it may just be him messing with them. Would you? Ultimately, this went on for several months a couple of trips by his brothers, until in chapter 45, the Bible tells us, and look at verse 1 of chapter 45, where we're going to pick up with the story. I encourage you to read everything between 42 and 45. It's fascinating. It's, uh, it reads better than anything you'll see on TV or reading a book, a novel. Verse 45, this is finally the moment when Joseph could stand it no longer. He, he couldn't mess with them any longer, basically. There were many people in the room, and he said to his attendants, Out, all of you. So he was alone with his brothers when he told them who he was. And he broke down and wept, and he wept so loudly. And remember what he just tell everybody to do? Leave. Leave, leave the house. 
But here he's weeping so loudly, Egyptians could hear him, and word of it quickly carried to Pharaoh's palace, which was not nearby, by the way. It was a little ways away. He says, I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? And then a classic understatement of Scripture. But his brothers were speechless. I mean, they were completely dumbfounded. They were stunned, the Bible says, to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. Please come closer, he said to them. So they came closer, as well they should, because he could make them come closer. So come closer. And he said to them, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. This famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more years. And there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here, not you. And he's the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace and the governor of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and tell him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me master over all the land of Egypt, so come down to me immediately. You can live in the region of Goshen where you can be near me with all your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and everything you own. I'll take care of you there. For there are still five years of famine ahead of us. Otherwise, you, your household, all your animals will starve. And then Joseph added, look, look, you can see for yourselves. So can my brother Benjamin that I really am Joseph. Go tell my father of my honored position here in Egypt. Describe for him everything you have seen. And then bring my father here quickly. And weeping with joy, the passage says, he embraced Benjamin and Benjamin did the same. And then Joseph kissed each of his brothers and wept over them. And after that, they began talking freely with him. So much could be said here. But since we've all got a past to overcome... What I want to do this morning for the next few minutes is quickly highlight for us the two keys to overcoming the past that Joseph models here. And not just, I believe, in these verses, but I believe, though, it's not recorded all the way through Genesis 37. and I think that this was a pattern that was characteristic of his life. And for the next few minutes, I want to highlight these keys. And my hope is that you'll listen carefully to them, that you reflect on your own life that you'll file them away if maybe one of them is uh, immediately think at the moment, I, I don't, that doesn't speak to me right now. That's okay. I would encourage you, write these two keys down, not because, uh, not because you must, but because you will need both of these keys throughout the course of your life. The first key to overcoming the past and even present difficulty really is this. It's learning to grieve. We have to learn to grieve. Some of us seem to intuitively know how to do that. Others of us are clueless on it. But multiple times when you look at Joseph's life, he broke down in tears, weeping. Verse 2 of chapter 45, he was weeping so out of control that people in neighboring areas suddenly began to hear him. What, what kind of weeping do we call that? It's wailing, isn't it? It's like somebody, somebody's not just crying. It's not just like little, little baby tears. This is like this guttural cry. 
of pain and sadness, sorrow. It's deep grief that Joseph let out in that moment. As I thought about all this, this is what kept coming to my mind. I kept thinking about this. Joseph had vast storehouses of grain that people lived on. Some of us have vast storehouses of grief that we live on, we feed off of. We have little joy because we feed off of that perpetual grief. We never throw the storehouse open and empty it all out. We just keep feeding off of it. We need to learn from Joseph to weep, to wail. We need to learn from Job of the Old Testament who tore his clothing and shaved his head in grief. We need to learn from King David who fasted from food and refused the comforts of his bed for days in 2 Samuel chapter 12 as an expression of grief. We need to learn from Jesus who prayed and wept and prayed and wept with such intensity that he sweat great drops of blood from his forehead just before he went to the cross on your behalf and mine. What is that? about he was grieving the cost of your forgiveness and mine he was in the loss of his own life and there's a spiritual principle of life that we all need to remember and respect i would encourage you to write this down this is this may be worth the morning if you think deeply about it this is the spiritual, one of the spiritual principles of life that we all need to remember and respect. All that is lost must be grieved. Anything you lose, to some degree, it must be grieved. Lost money must be grieved. Think about this. Part of aging is grieving the loss of youth, is it not? What I used to be able to do, what I once was able to do, it's that which is lost, youthfulness, must be grieved. Lost parents or children must be grieved. Lost opportunities must be grieved. Lost dreams, lost possessions, I could go on. Anything that's lost, all that is lost, must be grieved. It's part of why Jesus says in Matthew 6, 21, don't store up for yourselves treasures here on earth, where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. What's he talking about? He's just saying anything that you, you can can gather all these things to yourself. You can have these possessions, but guess what? If one of them's lost... You're going to have have to grieve. From God's perspective, you know, it's like when we gather all this stuff to ourselves, what do we do in our culture? We think, oh, this is the good life, right? I have all of this. Jesus is saying, no, it's the grief life. It's the grief life. Because everything that's lost, everything, will have a measure of grief associated with it first car that was truly mine was not a Camaro, not a Thunderbird, 
Not. It was a 77 white Buick Skylark. <laughs> Nothing to really write home about. Uh, but it was mine. I paid for it. Uh, it ran most of the time. And, uh, and I put a new stereo in it that was mine and did several things to it. And it was, and it was mine. It was my first car. And it was, it was cool. And I took it to college and drove it for a while and uh, had some great experiences in that car. But w- what ultimately happened was I can remember when I was in college, the uh, engine started doing weird things. And, and I, you know, I, I can frame a wall. I can do a lot of things. But I, I could not. I, I'm, I don't like mechanics when it comes to auto, auto mechanics is what I mean. I like mechanics, not auto mechanics. Uh, <clears throat> and so I'm in college. I'm just thinking, I, you know, I've I got to get rid of this car because I was 18, 14 hours away from home. So, uh, so I, 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 Dave Ramsey would have corrected me back in those days, but I s- traded that car on another car. I sold that car, bought another car, new car, actually, which, you know, don't recommend that in college. Don't do that. But, uh, but that's what I did. And um, I was excited about the new car, but you know what snuck up on me? When I sold that car, sold that, uh, that Skylark... I had this pit in my stomach. I, I, I had grief. Because I was parting with a car. I thought to myself even then, that, what is wrong with me? I should be excited about the new car. And I was, but it was mingled with grief. You ever experienced that? Some of us have bought cars and been sick then too. But uh, that's a real bummer because you're sick about what you're getting rid of and sick about what you're getting. So that's, that's sort of the double whammy. But it's the principle of life that all that's lost must be grieved. And if that's true for a car, how much more true is grief present when a beloved pet dies or a job we love is lost or a person we love passes And here's what many of us do. We just take that grief, we throw it in a storehouse, shut the doors. And think that it won't affect us. But left behind the storehouse doors, eventually what it does is it performs a little insurrection. And it will affect us. In ways and in times that are not of our choosing. We've got to learn from Joseph to grieve. There's a time and a place for it. To throw those doors open. To weep. To wail if we must. To cry out, pour out our hearts to God. I wonder what grief from your past have you been ignoring Trying desperately not to feel when the fact is the key to you moving beyond the past and into the future and the present destiny of your life where God wants you to go where you dream of going the key to that one of the keys is is grieving what has been the disappointments the loss I don't know what the loss might be for you But you do and God does. 
Releasing and processing grief is one of the keys to overcoming the pain of the past. And if you're stuck there, I mean, we've got resources. We have things we can do to help you. Obviously, we can pray for you. We want to do that. But you've got you to submit to the process, which Joseph did. Joseph did. Second key to overcoming the past is uh, relevant to all of us as well. We've got to learn to forgive. We've got to learn to forgive uh, people who hurt us, circumstances that come our way beyond our control, sometimes mistakes that we ourselves make. We think to ourselves, I should have known better, and then we just... Stay in a place of judgment and unforgiveness toward ourselves. Would you agree with me that Joseph had a lot to forgive? Would you agree? He had an enormous amount of pain, and so do some of us. But just as Joseph forgave, we can too. In fact, it's interesting to me that... uh, that God's forgiveness of us is tied up somehow in our learning to forgive others. We have to master this thing of forgiveness. No matter what comes our way in life. This past week, my wife Lori shared with me a powerful testimony of forgiveness from a woman named Stormy O'Mardian. And it fits so well uh, with what was on my heart to share today that I've asked her to read a portion of that testimony to you. Lori, come on up if you would. And um, this gal had a lot to forgive. I just want to encourage you for the next few moments to listen carefully to it and to uh, just say, God, what do you have to say to me about this? What can I learn from Joseph? What can I learn from Stormy? And and reflect on that. Okay. Okay. This is taken from an autobiography by Stormy O'Martin, and it's a true story of her life. And if you don't know her, she's a Christian author and speaker and has influenced many, many, many people, including me and others here as well. But she starts by saying these words, You're worthless, and you'll never amount to anything, my mother said as she pushed me into a little closet underneath the stairway and slammed the door. Now stay there until I can stand to see your face. The sound of her footsteps faded as she walked down the small hallway back to our kitchen. I wasn't really sure what I had done to warrant being locked in the closet again, but I knew it must be bad. I knew I must be bad, and I believed that all the negative things she had ever said about me were surely accurate. After all, she was my mother. The closet was a small, rectangular storage area underneath the stairs where the dirty laundry was kept in an old wicker basket. I sat on top of the pile of clothes and pulled my feet up high to try to eliminate the possibility of being touched by the mice that periodically streaked across the floor. I felt lonely, unloved, and painfully afraid as I waited in that dark hole for seemingly endless amounts of time it took for her to remember that I was there, or if my father would return, at which time she would make sure that I was let out of the closet. Either event would mean that my release from the closet and my devastating feeling of being buried alive and forgotten. As you probably can tell from this one incident, I was raised by a mentally ill mother, and among other atrocities, I spent much of my early childhood locked in a closet. 
Although certain people were aware of the bizarre behavior from time to time, her mental illness wasn't clearly identified until I was in my late teens. During all my growing up years, my mother's extremely erratic behavior left me with feelings of futility and hopelessness, helplessness, and deep emotional pain, so much so that by the time I was a young woman, I was still locked in a closet. Only the boundaries were emotional now rather than physical. I was walled in by a deep, ever-present pain in my soul which expressed itself through certain acts of self-destruction and a paralyzing fear that controlled my every breath. Many years later, I sat in front of Marianne, a Christian counselor, who told me I needed to forgive my mother. If I wanted to complete the wholeness and healing that I really did want, I needed to forgive my mother. Forgive someone who treated me with such hatred and abuse, someone who has ruined my life by making me an emotional cripple. How can I, I thought to myself, overwhelmed at the prospect of so great a task. I have already confessed my sins, and now my counselor is asking me to forgive my mother, all in the same counseling session. She said, you don't have to feel forgiveness in order to forgive someone. Forgiveness is something you do out of obedience to the Lord because he's forgiven you. You have to be willing to say, God, I confess hatred for my mother, and I ask your forgiveness. I forgive her for everything she did to me. I forgive her for not loving me, and I release her into your hands. As difficult as it was that day, I did, as Marianne instructed because I wanted to forgive my mother even though I felt nothing close to forgiveness at that time. God, I forgive my mother, I said at the end of the prayer. I knew that for me, even to be able to say those words, the power of God must be working in my life. And I felt his love at that moment more than I had ever felt love before. I soon, soon learned, however, that unforgiveness as deeply rooted as mine toward my mother must be unraveled one layer at a time. This was especially true for me since my mother's verbal abuse continued to increase in intensity in time as it went on. One day, as I again was asking God to help me forgive her and give me a forgiving heart, I felt led to pray, Lord, would you help me to have a heart like yours for my mother? And almost immediately, I had a vision of my mother that I had never seen before. She was beautiful. She was a fun-loving, gifted woman, a woman who bore no resemblance to the person I knew. My understanding told me I was seeing her the way God had made her to be and not the way that she had become. What an amazing revelation. I couldn't even have conjured it up myself. Nothing surpassed my hatred for my mother except perhaps the depth of my own emptiness. Yet now I felt compassion and sympathy for her. In an instant, I put together the pieces of her past, the tragic and sudden death of her own mother when she was just 11 years old, the suicide of her beloved uncle and foster father a few years later, her feelings of abandonment, guilt, bitterness, and unforgiveness, which contributed to her emotional and mental illness. I could see how her life, like mine, had been twisted and deformed by circumstances beyond her control, and suddenly I no longer felt hatred for her. I felt sorry instead. You see, being in touch with the heart of God for my mother brought such forgiveness in me that when she died a few years later, I had absolutely no bad feelings toward her. 
In fact, the more I forgave her, the more the Lord brought to mind good memories. I was amazed that there were any good memories at all when it came to my mother, but he brought them to my mind. Now, you may be thinking, I don't have to worry about this. I have no unforgiveness toward anyone. But forgiveness also has to do with not being critical of others. It has to do with keeping in mind that people are often the way they are because of how life has shaped them. It has to do with remembering that God is the only one who knows the whole story. And therefore, we never have the right to judge. Being chained in unforgiveness keeps us from, being, from the healing and joy and restoration that are there for all of us. Being released into everything God has for you today and tomorrow means letting go of all that's happened in the past. It means praying a prayer of release. Do you have unforgiveness for someone in your heart today that is slowly killing you? It's so important to remember that forgiveness isn't forgetting, and it isn't saying that what was bad is now good. It's still very bad. But it releases us into a life of freedom through Jesus Christ. So who do you need to forgive? What do you need to let go of? I think what we learn from testimonies like that and experience as we live our lives is that as long as we refuse to grieve and forgive, uh, we're emotionally, spiritually tied to the pain of our past. It's sort of like an umbilical cord that goes way back to the past, and it's attached to that, and it snakes its way invisibly into our present, interrupting our future, interrupting joy, interrupting opportunity, forcing upon us further grief, further disappointment, more circumstances that are in need of forgiveness. But if you and I will establish a pattern of grieving and forgiving the kind of pattern we see in Joseph, the kind of pattern we see in Jesus, the kind of pattern we see over and over again in the pages of Scripture, the cord of the past can be cut. And with that, we gain the freedom to become more fully who God made us to be, to more fully accomplish what his dream for our lives is. We get the freedom to move on. The freedom to overcome past evil with present good, just like Joseph did, just like God dreams for you, for me. So this morning I want to ask you, will you ask God to help you grieve and forgive the specific people and pain of your past? And I say you've got to ask God for this because... Independent of him, it just isn't going to happen. Independent of him, some of what we've all been through is so horrific that um, it just swallows you. But if you and I will seek him, uh, we'll find hope, we'll find help, we'll find freedom, and we'll find a future. 
band's going to sing for us a song that uh, is just a, a wonderful song. Listen carefully to the words. I think as you listen to it, it'd be a perfect time for you to just do a little business with God. If you, even if you're not listening to the lyrics, you're just talking to God. That's okay. I just want to encourage you to take these few moments, and if there's something you need to grieve. Do that. If there's something you need to forgive, someone you need to forgive, do that. The Holy Spirit brings something to your mind that you need to do in the days ahead. Just make note of that. Do that. But listen as as they sing. Let God touch your heart, okay? The whole song is about God being the remedy for our problems. The grief in our life, the pain that's come our way, the past that we've had to leave behind. I just kept thinking as I was listening to the song there, I just kept thinking of Isaiah 53, which says this, description of Messiah, Jesus. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be made whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We've left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Ultimately, the solution to our grief, to our need to forgive, as well as be forgiven, is the one and only Savior. Never given your life to him. Just want to encourage you this morning. Open your heart to him. He knows what grief feels like. He knows what it means to both be hurt and to forgive purchased your forgiveness he wants you to feel that the joy that can be his the future that can be yours let's stand together we're going to close in prayer if you need prayer for anything come on down afterwards we'd be happy to pray with you maybe you got some area that you just want somebody to pray with you about uh, we want to want to do that before you leave today, okay? Let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you don't just give us pious biblical platitudes in Scripture, but you reveal to us people who experience real life and real pain, and through the power of your Spirit, rise above that. Father, that's what we need, every one of us we've all got a past we all need strength to move beyond the past into the future that you have for us would you help us God to grieve what we need to grieve would you help us to forgive whoever and whatever we need to forgive would you help us to forgive like you have forgiven us and God will give you credit for the good that results for the future that becomes ours Would you go with us, Father, as we leave this place? May your blessing rest on every single person, every single family. We rejoice to be yours. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Bless you all.